This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to the In Focus podcast. I'm Jee Sampath, your host for today's episode. Seven years after the allegations were first made. A sessions court in Goa has acquitted journalist Tarun Tejpal of rape charges. The 527-page judgment has come under close scrutiny and many legal experts have found the verdict problematic. Some of the purported flaws that have been pointed out include the focus on the victim's sexual history and a certain presumption about so-called normative behavior of a rape victim. The Goa government has appealed against Tejpal's acquittal in the Bombay High Court. In its appeal, it has also argued that this is a fit case for retrial. So, how do we really understand the outcome of this high-profile case whose trial and verdict took 7 years? Has the needle on gender justice moved at all since the Nirbhaya case and the much celebrated amendments to our rape laws? To discuss all this in detail, We have with us Aarti Raghavan. Aarti is an advocate at the Bombay High Court and has closely studied our legal system's track record on gender justice. Aarti, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Aarti, to start with, uh, let's uh, let's begin with the responses uh, to the judgment. And many women's rights organizations have called uh, the Tejpal verdict a travesty, and have stated that from the judgment it looks like it is the victim who has been put on trial rather than the accused or the facts. Uh, would you agree with this assessment? Yes, um, I would agree with the assessment, but I'd like to clarify that my agreement is not because the trial did not conclude in a conviction, but because existing safeguards in law were breached. It is the process and the manner in which the acquittal was arrived at in the trial and judgment that needs to be taken issue with. Now you've read the judgment, Sampath. You must have seen the copious extracts from Supreme Court judgments in the first few pages. I thought it was particularly striking how many legal principles in these judgments cited have been flagrantly breached. This includes Supreme Court judgments that observe that the court must not act as a silent spectator during a cross-examination and must not allow the cross-examination to become a means to harass and humiliate a victim. Uh the judgment also unfortunately reinforces patriarchal stereotypes like you mentioned as to what an ideal or norm or what normative victimhood looks like. and finds reasons to attack the credibility of the victim on the grounds that she is educated independent and well versed with rape laws the judgment also doesn't appear to engage with or scrutinize the defense's case with any real rigor uh this was evident in how it deals with mr tejpal's text messages and emails for instance um so yes without getting into any further details of the case i would say that the criticism to the judgment appears well founded However, the failures in the Tejpal trial are not an exceptional or a particularly egregious instance of a failure in our legal system when it comes to crimes against women. Historically, the criminal justice system has been hostile to victims of sexual crimes, right from the process of registering an FIR to the medical examination to the failure of the state to provide adequate legal and social support services 
including things like uh, treatment and counseling for victims, it is uh, an inherently hostile process. So if the process is uh, uh, so deeply problematic, does, does the fault in, in, uh, in this lie, uh, can we say that the fault lies primarily with the prosecution or with the judge or is the defense, the way they've uh, kind of strategized this, is there, are they to blame or is it our statute books and the evidentiary rules in uh, for sexual assault cases that are to blame? Like where do we uh, focus the blame in, in the way this whole thing has worked out? In the case of the Tejpal trial. Yeah, yeah. Um, there appears to have been multiple issues at play in this instance. Uh, the, to start off, the judge failed to protect the witness from a harrowing cross-examination. Uh, despite evidence regarding the sexual history of the victim being considered irrelevant as a matter of law under the Indian Evidence Act, not only did she allow impermissible questions to, on these lines to be put to the victim, she also clearly allowed the evidence to affect the outcome of the trial. So the judge's observations and conclusions, in addition, um, her observations and conclusions also reeked of a patriarchal mindset. But let's bear in mind that even in the 21st century, Justice Shama Joshi's uh, approach is no outlier. And these patriarchal values are seen at every level of our legal system. And now what exacerbates this problem is the lack of any clear commitment towards creating a gender justice, a sensitive judiciary, through training and assessment of judicial officers, both at the time of appointment and through their service, um, or any efforts to put in place deterrence for their failure to be gender sensitive. Um, in the Tejpal case, there also appears to have been serious investigative lapses, such as with the CCTV footage on a, on a certain floor of the hotel, that impaired the prosecution's case. Um, investigative lapses affect the quality of evidence and the victim, or in some cases, the accused may be irreparably harmed by this. Um, there's no system in place where errant officers are held accountable for these lapses. But beyond these specific factors, the Tejpal judgment is really an indictment of our system. Um, by its nature, it is normally the victim who is put on trial. As I mentioned, at every stage, the decks are stacked against them. So I wouldn't say that yeah, you can so you, you, were saying, uh, you, you just mentioned that uh, uh, about, uh, about the victim being put on trial. I mean, in, in this particular case, both the defense and the prosecution seem to have depended... Uh, excessively on the victim's testimony to make their case. I mean, I mean when you, you're speaking of the, about the investigation, hmm. the investigation uh, has uh, so many lapses. They don't seem to have really paid much of uh, attention to the whole CCTV-related uh, evidence gathering and so on. And, uh, and they seem to have sort of sat back and assumed that the victim's testimony is enough to clinch the case for them. And similarly, the defense too seem to have relied excessively on the victim's testimony uh, and breaking it down to show that it is inconsistent or whatever to make their case. Is this normal where you the entire focus of the trial is on one person's testimony? Is this normal at all in these cases, in such cases? Um, I, I mean, first to go to your statement that there was an inordinate focus on the victim's testimony. I don't entirely agree with that because it is a fact that the prosecution led um, over 50 witnesses. There was electronic evidence that was gathered. I mean, there was limited CCTV footage. There was there were WhatsApp messages, text messages, emails. Uh, the larger failure is that the judgment does not engage with all this evidence effectively. And the judgment instead 
focuses focuses inordinately on the victim's own testimony but on your larger question of um you know reliance on solely or largely witness testimony i would say it isn't unusual in the case of rape and sexual assault for a case to be prosecuted primarily on the basis of a rape victim's testimony uh quite often women are hesitant to come forward and report sexual offenses right after they occur or they may not be in a position to do so within a certain time frame where crucial physical evidence can be gathered through a medical examination for instance uh there is also the problem where sometimes despite women reporting rapes or assaults on time systemic delays and failures leads to evidence being lost um delays in obtaining a medical examination improperly conducted examinations where necessary steps like vaginal swabs are not taken uh, these are fatal missteps and they have irreparable consequences on the outcome of the trial they're quite common unfortunately and there are no attempts made to address such investigative errors or compensate victims for it but apart from the fact uh, from the issue of evidence being improperly secured or lost there are also cases where the primary evidence is only in the form of witness testimony particularly where there is a delay in reporting it um and this is what makes rape trials particularly tricky as they rest heavily on the determination of the credibility of testimony and there is no easy or clear formula for such a determination and it's um the trial is inevitably affected by the biases and prejudices of the judicial officers conducting these trials so in, okay in short, where uh, as you said uh, where you are saying that the te- the 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 outcome of the trial uh, uh, relies to a great extent on the credibility of the victim's testimony now one of the ways such credibility is sought to be established is by uh, is 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 by uh, measuring their statements against each other and evidence over a period of time and in a case like this which is dragged on for 7 years there is a great deal of reliance on uh, human memory which is known to be fragile i mean i mean when so much hinges on one person's or a few people's ability to recall things accurately over a long period of time i mean is this uh, is it is is it really quite odd i mean to have some kind of an expectation like this which is against human capabilities which is like flies in the face of what we know about human memory and so on No absolutely I agree with you um the delay between an incident and an eventual cross examination does have implications on the testimony of a witness and this affects not only the victim but also the accused and any other wit- witness whose testimony forms part of the trial and added to this in the case of victims is the issue of uh, post trauma post violence um you know memory loss where all the details of an attack may not be readily recalled in the aftermath of an incident and may only come to them if at all much later um but however what happens in the course of an investigation and trial is that there are various stages at which statements are recorded and the victim is however held to the statement first recorded and any subsequent omissions and additions um or changes are held against the victim and it affects or dents the victim's credibility so yes of course the delays in the trial have severe implications on uh, the quality of testimony that can be obtained okay so uh, at the same time we have a we have a, a current system where uh, many people argue that the victim's testimony uh, should be enough to convict the accused in a rape case now if that is so 
And then what is the need for a trial? You know, that is a counter question which would come up. Wouldn't the testimony once recorded be enough to directly sentence the accused? Or, or to put it differently, what more is expected of a trial from the prosecution's side once we sanctify the principle that the victim's testimony in a rape case must be believed? I mean, in the Tejpal case, doesn't it appear as though uh, the prosecution's approach has been based entirely on this presumption? <laughs> the, I mean, I, I don't agree with this suggestion that a victim's testimony must be unquestioningly accepted. It's a rather extreme proposition. Uh, we can't forget that in a criminal trial, there is a person's liberty at stake. There is undoubtedly a need to test a woman's account. It is how the woman's testimony is scrutinized and the factors that feed into ascertaining its credibility that are problematic. Um, so in 1983, the Supreme Court, in a judgment in the uh, Bharwada Hirijbhai case, first affirmed the proposition that a rape, convic- uh, rape conviction can be secured without corroboration of a victim's testimony. Now, this judgment makes for a very interesting read, I must say. It observes that in a tradition-bound society such as India, a rape victim's testimony must be ascribed credibility as the social consequences of rape to the honor of a woman and her family are dire, and a woman would not make a wrong accusation of rape. As you can see, it is extremely problematic that the credibility sought to be given to a victim's testimony is based on notions of shame and dishonor associated with rape. In the same case, the Supreme Court also emphasized that this requirement for corroborative evidence in rape cases was an import from the Western world. The court felt that in India, seeking corroboration added insult to injury to a rape victim. The court observed that the Western world had permissive values. So women living in these societies with their permissive values could not have their testimonies be accepted without corroboration, as these women may be gold diggers, vengeful, suffer from neurosis, be vindictive, or be spurned in, um, or be motivated by monetary motives. Uh, it's interesting to see how many of these factors that the Supreme Court outlined um, for Western women in the Western world actually were at play in the conclusions drawn in the Tarun Tejpal judgment against the victim. So you see, there is a tendency of the law to create the stereotype of this ideal rape victim. Um, This creation of the notion of a helpless rape victim in a tradition-bound society, as opposed to a victim seen to embrace more permissive values, is not purely the creation of the judge in the Tejpal case and has a long and unfortunate history in the Indian legal system. Um, As to the prosecution's approach in the Tejpal case, I wouldn't say it rested purely on victims' uh, testimony, as I pointed out earlier. There was a lot of other evidence on record that simply wasn't considered. Uh-huh. So, uh, so, so, so on on the one hand, I mean, the the, the general uh, understanding for lay persons who are not legal experts seems to be that when 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 somebody says that the victim's testimony uh, is is enough to secure a conviction, it looks like you are you are making a system that is uh, favorably inclined towards a victim of uh, a sexual offense. But at the same time. We have this entire uh, thing about uh, sterling witness. The, the testimony has to be of sterling quality. Only then it would be adequate for conviction. Now, this seems to completely flip the whole thing against uh, uh, the victim's interest here because then the entire focus, as we saw in this particular case, 
is to prove that the victim's testimony is not of sterling quality, which then leads to this, what we saw in this uh, from the judgment of you know a, a close scrutiny of the victim's behavior, character, and so on, so forth. So, uh, which seems to sort of make the battle again loaded in favor of the accused, because then you're focusing again on the victim's uh, history and so on. So, what's going on here? Yeah. No, I'd agree. It, uh, the law sets a very high and difficult bar to meet. Um, on the one hand, we have to appreciate the need for rigor in the assessment of a victim's testimony if it is to be the sole basis on which a conviction is made. But in the process, the bar for a sterling witness has been set impossibly high. Um, for instance, the court requires consistency in the victim's statement from the starting to the end of the trial. There are problems that may arise in the earlier stages of the investigation where statements are recorded by the police, then later before a magistrate. And in these instances, um, because of a lack of legal assistance for the victim, potential communication issues or lapses in memory, the accounts may not be entirely accurate or comprehensive or even consistent. Then there are more egregious instances, uh, such as a case last year in Bihar in Araria. Here, a survivor of a gang rape was before a magistrate to record her statement. Uh, she could not read or write and was accompanied by social workers from an NGO. She orally narrated her statement and the magistrate asked her to sign the statement that he'd taken down. When she asked for it to be read out to her, the magistrate took offense to this request and asked why she did not trust him. When she insisted that her social worker be present to read the statement to her, both the victim and the social workers were arrested um, for weeks for obstruction of justice and found to be in contempt of court. So, as you can see, there are perfectly innocent, understandable reasons for inconsistencies between a statement recorded at various stages um, in an investigation and in a subsequent trial. It isn't simply the aspect of fragile memory, but also systemic failures that must be accounted for while assessing the quality of oral testimony. Um, there is also, you know, the requirement in the Sterling Witness Test that uh, she should be able to withstand cross-examination of any length, however strenuous. And this ignores the harm that is caused to a victim by such relentless and damaging cross-examination. But Sampath, just to move away from the concept of a Sterling Witness in a rape trial, I think it's interesting to also see how the law and practice lowers the bar for testing the credibility of persons when it serves powerful interests. Um, take the case of a batch of petitions filed before the Supreme Court um, seeking the institution of an inquiry into the circumstances of the death of a judge in Maharashtra, Judge Loya. Now, Judge Loya was presiding over the trial in the Shurabdin Sheikh uh, encounter case, as you may recall. And the present Home Minister Amit Shah was the prime accused. Four judicial officers of the D District Judiciary in Maharashtra uh, had submitted signed statements and two judges of the Bombay High Court had made statements in a newspaper, all of which indicated that there were no mysterious circumstances surrounding the judge's death and they, it did not warrant an investigation. When the petitioner sought a cross-examination of these judges on the basis of their statements, the Supreme Court was appalled. And it imperiously rejected this request, saying that the statements had a ring of truth to it. Now, while I appreciate that this was the hearing of a petition before the Supreme Court and not a rape trial before a Sessions Court, I think it's interesting to see how the law can assign a higher degree of credibility to the statements of persons in certain situations 
and subject them to a far less rigorous standard of scrutiny okay this is very interesting so what you are saying is that uh, on the one hand the criteria for uh, for what would qualify as a sterling quality uh, testimony from a rape victim is actually really unrealistic and impractical and on the other hand for someone uh, like 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 you mentioned in the case of the loya case when a, the moment a person becomes a judge it is as if automatically they anything they say becomes of sterling quality when is this Yeah. I mean I think the hypocrisy is writ large in the in this example um and it's unfortunate and I think it's symptomatic of uh, how power operates at every level of our legal system. Right. M- moving on to another aspect of of this particular case uh we 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 uh, we make out from the judgment that the victim's phone was handed over to the prosecution and and many people have commented on what has amounted to uh, within courts a digital strip search of the victim i mean is is this something that uh, that needs to be uh, re- revisited you know the way a sexual assault victim's phone is sort of cloned and handed over to the prosecution there might be other ways of handling uh, the sharing of evidence and so on uh, is there um <clears throat> see i mean it doesn't in it this sort of uh, duplication of phone data and sharing it with the defense doesn't necessarily happen in all rape cases the prosecution in any crime is required to pursue all reasonable lines of inquiry in cases such as where the accused is known to the victim then uh, digital evidence including mobile phone data may be relevant and the police could require victim's phone data now criminal procedure requires that the accused is provided with material that the prosecution may rely on for its case the law recognizes that the accused cannot be confined only to material that the prosecution may think is relevant even material that is seized in the course of investigation is to be provided to the accused particularly if it could assist the case of the accused here is where the privacy of a victim may be compromised again there are unfortunately no easy answers Certainly a victim should be given a choice as to whether or not to share phone data but must also be informed of the implications on the case should she choose not to share the data or information also once the data is disclosed it is often difficult to limit access to personal information and it is here that you need a judge to protect a witness by strictly applying rules of relevance and admissibility of evidence and also penalizing parties who have leaked or misused confidential or personal information um but so yeah i mean it's dif- difficult to conceive of an alternate approach to the matter but certainly more care and caution should be exercised in uh, sharing this information so in this case uh, it, it, does it does it appear to you that a lot of uh, evidence from the phone Uh, which are not relevant and should therefore have been uh, not taken uh, not allowed into the trial has been allowed into the trial absolutely i mean it, it's clear that the her you know chat history has been scoured including the names of chat groups um messages and uh, confidence ex- uh, confidences exchanged with friends details of sexual history all of which um, are either irrelevant or in- inadmissible and not only were these asked to uh, allowed to be used in her cross examination but also uh, ultimately uh, seeped into the adjudication and final determination in the case um so yes okay also i don't know I mean, isn't this uh, I mean, is, 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 i mean 
these kinds of situations i have only seen such cases in 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 hollywood and bollywood i mean the 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 prosecution lawyer in this case is supposed to have should have objected right i objected your honor and it should have been sustained i mean i, I wonder if uh, those objections objections can you know happened and then the judge overruled them or is it like they never happened what It's appears like, to have happened is that objections have been noted and this happens quite frequently in criminal criminal trials um where um, you know where I, either a witness is confronted with inadmissible evidence or made to answer impermissible questions and the objection is noted by the judge um hmm. and a ruling on the objection is reserved for final arguments so you're faced with a situation where the witness is forced to answer a question that should never have been put to her and you can't turn the clock back on that event and you can't uh, erase the memory of that response from the judge's mind so although it isn't supposed to weigh on her final determination of the matter um it unconsciously or sometimes consciously seeps into the conclusions and observations in the judgment okay so now uh, the goa government in its appeal before the bombay high court against mm-hmm. uh, tejpal's acquittal has said that this is a fit case for uh, uh, for a retrial citing the trial court's lack of understanding of a victim's post trauma behavior and so on so what criteria have to be met for a case to go for for retrial does this judgment meet those criteria and even if it does I mean, is it really uh, in the victim's interest to go for a retrial um to answer your last question first just briefly no i i mean i i don't think it's it would be in the victim's interest but uh, to elaborate uh, a retrial is ordered in an appeal from an acquittal only in exceptional circumstances when the court considers that a retrial is indispensable to avert a failure of justice um an appellate court such as the bombay high court in this instance has wide and plenary powers to reevaluate evidence reappraise the evidence that's on record and to also take additional evidence either by itself or to direct the trial court to record it um the law recognizes that the retrial that a retrial is laborious and it has severe cost and time implications and of course it cons- causes considerable hardship to the witnesses in the trial um like instances where a retrial may be ordered is if for instance um the trial is conducted by a court that does not have jurisdiction or if the court refuses to hear certain witnesses that were supposed to be heard in the tejpal case it is unclear what ends of justice would be secured by a retrial it's also not clear whether the victim was consulted while making this request or whether she was represented before the high court or has expressed her views on the matter of a retrial in this case in particular i feel that an appellate court in a, is in a position to reappreciate the evidence on record and revisit the conclusions arrived at by a trial judge without subjecting the individuals involved to the pain of a retrial okay you just mentioned uh, about uh, this whole phenomenon of increasing the severity of sentencing mm-hmm. uh, and so on see after the the nibaya case of uh, 2012 our uh, rape laws were amended as we know uh, to make them more strict and to expand the definition of uh, rape or sexual assault so for instance uh, judges no longer have the discretion to award a sentence uh, a sentence less than uh, whatever is the minimum which is 10 years and while a rape is a rape is a rape i mean are we creating new problems when we say uh, for instance that there is no distinction at all to be made in terms of uh, crime and punishment between 
a Mahmood Faruqi kind of a case or a Tejpal case and something like uh, the brutality of the Hathras gang rape or the Nirbhaya case itself. I mean, is it possible that the elimination of all distinctions uh, between these different kinds of uh, incidents could be counterproductive when a judge has to decide about awarding a 10-year sentence? Absolutely. I do think that harsher sentences can serve to be counterproductive, uh, even if the goal of the system was to um, ensure imprisonment or uh, conviction and imprisonment of the perpetrator. Uh, the um, I mean the first I mean some of the amendments were much needed, especially the amendment of the definition of rape to include acts other than penovaginal sex. Um, the earlier restricted reading of the definition of rape was underpinned by again patriarchal notions that uh, treated the womb as sacred and rape as an assault on the womb. However, there are real problems that arise from this notion that rape is rape is rape. And that all forms of rape must merit a minimum sentence uh, of rigorous imprisonment of at least 10 years. While this is a controversial issue, um, I think it is difficult and it is difficult to quantify the harm caused to a rape victim who, for instance, was subjected to non-consensual oral sex as opposed to a more brutal gang rape. I feel it is important for the law to recognize and engage with degrees. There are thorny issues around how consent may be expressed in intimate relationships or in cases where the accused and victim are well acquainted. Particularly in such cases, there is an understandable reluctance to sentence an accused to a minimum of 10 years for such an act. And this could have a detrimental impact on securing convictions. Um, So yes, uh, as you said, I do feel like harsher sentences are very often counterproductive. And this has been observed empirically as well. Okay. 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 So, Aarti, my last question uh, in this uh, this particular issue to you. See, there have been uh, innumerable cases of uh, problematic acquittals. Tejpal case is not the first, as we know. And why? But but nonetheless, we very rarely see uh, senior judges or uh, lawyers speaking up uh, publicly for gender justice. Uh, like they have done in other uh, issues. So is there too much of uh, systemic uh, misogyny? Like you refer to institutionalized misogyny uh, in our legal system. Is there a lot of, uh, is there too much of systemic misogyny in our judiciary uh, for one to realistically expect uh, justice as a matter of course for uh, victims of sexual offences? Um, yes, unfortunately, I do believe that misogyny is deeply embedded in our male-dominated legal system. Uh, I can't think of a more telling example than the sexual harassment allegations against the former Chief Justice Gogoi. Um, over here, you had the bar and bench colluding in victim-shaving the complainant even before an inquiry was instituted. Now, this included the Attorney General, Mr. Venugopal, and the Solicitor General, Mr. Tushar Mehta. I also think it's ironic, um, based on newspaper reports that I've come across, that Mr. Mehta appearing for the state of Goa in the Tejpal matter has pushed for an early hearing of the appeal, stating that we owe it to our girls. Uh, It's a shame that the same apparent concern and uh, respect was not extended to the complainant in the Justice Gogoi case. And in that case, the inquiry into the complainant was conducted in a manner that violated the basic requirements of natural justice and due process. Another instance was a few months ago, Justice Bobde, uh, sitting as the chief justice, was hearing petitions relating to the farmers' protests 
and questioned why women and children were being kept at the protests and uh, asked that they be persuaded persuaded to leave the protest site. Now, this patronizing and patriarchal approach is not an outlier, but is very much embedded in the system. But I have to say that added to the entrenched misogyny in our system are also issues of caste and class and the issue of access to justice. Um, there is a wholly inadequate investment of resources and attention to providing legal aid and representation to victims through a criminal trial. And the implications of this are particularly acute when the victim is from a marginalized community and, there are and they are invariably excluded from our legal system. Um, so all of this is why I feel that as lawyers, um, we're inordinately wedded to this idea that justice is realized through our adversarial legal system. Uh, the stated goals of criminal justice are retribution, restitution, rehabilitation, and deterrence. So it's clear that the survivor or the victim is not the central concern of this system. And this has to change. And unless it does change, um, we are never going to have gender-just outcomes. Right. That's a rather somber and uh, sobering thought uh, to consider and to contemplate that uh, gender justice uh, seems to be uh, right now a far cry given the entrenched uh, misogyny and other forms of uh, hypocrisy. Uh, well, thank you so much, Arti, for uh, joining us in this discussion. There's a lot to ponder here and uh, hopefully we'll be uh, tracking the development of this case in the months to come. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sampai. It was a pleasure. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.